This is Without Compromise, a show that explores what happens when you won't settle for anything less than your crazy ideas. We'll talk to athletes, founders, adventurers, and entrepreneurs of all kinds about living without compromise. I'm your host, Mason Gravely. Welcome to the show. We're programmed for survival, so our instinct is to give up on these situations, to move away from them. I thought if I didn't sign up for that race, that I was just going to disappear. It doesn't have to be these big, huge things that everyone thinks you need to do to make a difference. Happy New Year's, folks. I know there's nothing, you know, technically that different about today that uh, makes anything in the world, any problems go away, but it is something, you know, psychological that happens with us. It's the start of something fresh. It's the ability to make a clear distinction in our mind, uh, a place to reinvent ourselves, a place to pivot, a place to make decisions. So I encourage you to use today and use this year to to do something better. And what better story to have than someone like Pete? Pete's, Pete's story is incredible. And we really only scratched the surface in this episode. So even after you listen to this, I encourage you to seek out some of the other things he's talking about, about documentaries, about his injury, um, other articles that have been written about him recently. Uh, this is definitely, like he said in his own words, struck a chord with the cycling community, his leaving the pro tour to go to uh, to gravel racing and to not just chase fastest known times, but funnest known times. But before we get into it, I do want to plug something we're doing at Athletic Brewing. Um, for all our ambassadors who are, uh, who are scattered all around the country, we're doing a very cool challenge with uh, ladder teams. We're going to be doing this month-long dry January challenge. We're going to be doing beer games partnered with this workout challenge. But if you're uh, if you're interested, please check the Ambassador newsletter. Uh, download the Ladder app so that you can work out with us and uh, do those all throughout the whole month of dry January. And please follow you know Athletic Brewing on social media so you can hear all that. But anyway, uh, I had the pleasure of meeting Pete in Telluride over the summer on our coast-to-coast bike trip. I don't know if you y'all remember that. It feels like forever ago. But we rode bicycles from our San Diego, or actually from the Connecticut brewery all the way to the San Diego brewery uh, over the summer. It was really crazy. And Pete helped us out with that. He rode a few miles for us. They were some of the fastest miles of the whole trip because he's a pro cyclist. And the rest of us were definitely not. So... <laughs> So those are some quick miles for us, but uh, it was just so great to meet him. He's such a, a good person to, to have in our community. We're thankful to have folks like this as uh, some of our pro athletes. So Pete, thanks for joining us. So without further ado, Pete Stetna. Is it Stetna or Stetina? I, had, I heard it pronounced both ways, actually. It is Stetna. Uh, it's a, we're, we, my ancestors come from uh, Czechoslovakia, and then all the Italians racing in Europe would think uh, it's Statina, Statina. So, <laughs> yeah, everyone says it that way, but it's it's Stetna with a silent eye. Man, you know what I think it was? I think it was actually Italian saying it, Statina. <laughs> so that's so <laughs> funny when in my research. But anyway, Pete, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah. yeah. So, so you, we talked a little bit before, but you're you're coming from the Tahoe area. Is, is that is that home for you, or or where do you consider home? Uh that's an ongoing conversation. Um, technically, the primary <laughs> residence is Santa Rosa, uh, Wine Country, California, Sonoma County, just north of San Francisco. Uh, great all season riding, vineyards, foodie, wino, craft beer paradise. Um, 
but uh, I also have a little cabin in Tahoe where I spend most of my warm or most of the summer fall months uh, preparing for the biggest races. And uh, that's, that's my happy spot. So um, a lot of people think I am full-time in Tahoe, but I'm not really a full-time resident in either. It's <laughs> yeah. Looking forward to the constant change a little bit. I think so. And I just growing up racing every weekend all over the world, it's uh, you know, I, I definitely have some wanderlust uh, built into my, my lifestyle and soul. So I, I get a little antsy if I'm somewhere too long, I got to change it up with fresh scenery and, and different rides. So, so you, you mentioned childhood. Well, where did you grow up? And, and, you know, it sounds like you got into cycling pretty young. What was kind of, you know, what kind of family did you grow up in super active or, or, or did you find it kind of on your own? Yeah, I, um, I grew up in Boulder, Colorado. So outdoor sports Mecca, you know, and a kid growing up in this, idyllic outdoor community, health focused, hippie yuppie society. Um, and, uh, my, my dad was actually a, a famous American bike racer back in the seventies uh, and early eighties. So, um, it was kind of in my, in my blood, I guess, but, um, you know, I, so I, I became that classic talent pipeline development, you know, just picked up, I already had kind of a name attached to me, uh, even before I started riding. But, um, I found it on my own. You know, my parents never pushed me into the sport. I actually found it through, you know, a soccer buddy. We were soccer teammates and he was into mountain bike racing. And I joined the local YMCA team. And our first big race was this 24 hours of Moab relay race where you, you know, you trade off laps with five kids or pros or whoever, you know, throughout the night, uh, 24 hour racing used to be a lot bigger. So that was kind of my first foray. And then once I found the sport and was like, oh my gosh, I like this and I'm, I'm, pretty good at this, then, uh, then my family, you know, had that, that background to really support me. How soon was your talent like a parent? Was it, was it right away or, or did you grow into that as well? I think it was always pretty evident. I was going to be an athlete. You know, I talked to my mom and stuff and she was like, you know, as a kid, like I had so much energy. She was like, she would just tell, like, bring me outside and say, like, I'm going to time you to run around the house, you know, as fast as you can. <laughs> and I would do a lap and she'd be like, no, nope, that wasn't good enough. And I just keep doing it until I was tired. So I think the, I was a runner first before I found cycling. Uh, I tried every sport pretty bad with uh, hand-eye coordination, ball handling skills, but, um, so no basketball. <laughs> <laughs> I tried, I loved it. Um, I remember growing up watching like the, the Jordan Pippin Rodman reign of the bulls and stuff. And yeah, but, uh, once I found cycling, I was invested very fast, loved it. So yeah, not a lot of basketball proteges coming out of Boulder, but cycling now yeah. on the other hand, um, exactly, definitely, definitely. So, so, so from there, were you, were you, you know, what, what was the kind of climbing through the ranks like for you? Was it, uh, you know, Boulder is by no means a small pond I'm sure not even back then. So right. you were, if you were doing well there, you were probably pretty clear you could, you you could take that talent somewhere, somewhere bigger. Yeah. You know, and Boulder was unique. I have a very different version of Boulder in my head than many, because a lot of people mm. move there to be an elite athlete. Right. And they just get ingrained with that community immediately. Whereas, you know, I grew up with my high school friends and, and, you know, just kind of was, the, the, the sport side of Boulder was kind of just on the side, but, uh, 
you know, it, it, it was pretty plug and play pretty fast. You know, there was so many pros living in Boulder that, you know, I was immediately picked up by Jonathan Botter's junior team. Right. And so for anyone who follows pro tours, road cycling, uh, the current EF pro cycling team in the tour de France and all that started as this little junior amateur team in front range of Colorado in, I want to say it was like 2003, you know, and every year it kind of grew. And so I was like one of the original Colorado members. And basically every year they kind of made a step up, got bigger sponsors, signed bigger names. I was just good enough to kind of make the cut. So I was very much a um, grassroots development project of the Slipstream organization, which is the the founding company of, of the EF team. Um, you know, it was just kind of, I stayed with them. And then, you know, I started getting invited by Team USA to do uh, events in Europe on the side. Um, and just slowly, you know, reached a higher level. You graduate out of juniors, you go into the under 23 ranks. And then after you age out of under 23s, I was good enough to sign, you know, the pro tour contract um, for, again, those who don't follow cycling, the pro tour is kind of like the major leagues of, of cycling, right? So the pro tour is the biggest races in the world, like the tour de France and that stuff. And there's 18 teams in that, that tier. And so I kind of graduated into there in 2010 when I was uh out of my under 23 season so i guess 24 what what was the experience of 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 riding on those pro teams like that had to feel just crazy like being at the top of kind of the talent pool that early on and i felt like it was big then i was watching the tour de vi or like the the tour de france around 2010 when i first started getting interested and it just seemed like it was growing so quickly in popularity oh yeah and you know it was i was definitely part of that generation with the juniors that came out of watching Lance Armstrong, you know, um, because cycling just boomed so hard during the Lance era, you know, as along with Tyler Hamilton, Levi Lifehammer, a whole host of, you know, there's this, this, you know, take out, take away the whole dark side of the, the cycling and doping issue. Right. But there was like this, this decade era of just like Americans at the top of the sport. Right. Um, and, and, you know, so as a junior growing up in that, like you have all these idols to look up to. So cycling really exploded that time. Um, and then, you know, with with Lance retiring, it kind of became the American media was like, oh, my God, who's our next, you know, who's our next Lance? You know, um, you know, I never had that quite that amount of pressure. Um, you know, there was a, another writer uh, by the name of TJ who had a lot more pressure than I did to actually be the next American Lance. But, you know, it's kind of this whole we kind of had like this graduating class of guys who were born in the, uh, the late eighties, you know, from 86 to, to 89, who were all, uh, quite competitive on the world stage, uh, from a very young age. And, uh, USA cycling had like this influx from the Lance era to, to invest in, in our development too. Um, so it was just kind of all the whole right time, right place type of thing. Um, and then, you know, as, as personally, you know, you, you, you made it, you know, when you sign that pro contract and you're on one of those big teams, I mean, that's, that's validation, right? You know, that's your stamp of approval, um, which was huge, you know, and that's, that's the dream that you sacrificed everything for and sacrificed an education and all that. So I did, I did that, that game for, for a decade, wouldn't, wouldn't trade it for anything. Uh, it's hard. It's cutthroat. It's lonely, you know, living out of a suitcase in Europe by yourself a lot of the time, missing family graduations and and all that and vacations and you know at the same time it's worth it and you know i did a bunch of world championships a bunch of grand tours uh tour de france's all that um and uh it was awesome but uh 
then I moved on and met you guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell us, man, like what, what was, you, you mentioned, you know, it was something you wouldn't trade, but also very lonely, very challenging. I mean, h- how competitive did you have to be? Right. You know, pro cycling is a 24 seven job for 11 months of the year. You know, you have your one off season after the last race where basically you check out for a month, you do home projects, you drink as much beer as you can fit in the system. And and then you step on the scale 31 days later and you say, Oh crap, like here, you know, nose to the grindstone. But then the rest of the year, I mean, it is, it's when your body's your job, you can't really do the whole, you know, nine to five thing. Like you really just have to, I mean, everything you eat the night before counts towards the next day's training, you know, and, and stretching after the ride, you know, so you always just have to be fully invested in your body. Um, you know, which is, it's hard, you know, it's, it's hard to not, you know, take it. You want to take your foot off the gas, but then someone else is pushing just as hard and the sport of cycling being so international, right? Like it's, all you need is a bike and to prove yourself in a race and you can start to be noticed, especially in Europe, you know? So it's, um, being a global sport like that. I mean, there's not many other sports where, you know, some kid from the farm in Lithuania can compete from, you know, some kid in the Boulder Mecca of Colorado, you know, and, and it's, everyone can kind of prove themselves. And and if you get noticed, you get a chance. So it's, um, there's a lot of people with a lot of hunger out there. So you, you, you know, it's very true in cycling that you're kind of only as good as your last race. And it's a, it's a pretty cutthroat lifestyle, you know, and, and if you do sacrifice, you know, I, I mean, I didn't go to my sister's college graduation, uh, in, in, in uh, Bellingham, you know, because, you know, I had to, even though I wasn't at a race, you know, I had to be in Europe to not be dealing with jet lag, to be ready for the race a week later. And, you know, that's, it's hard to miss a lot of those things, but at the same time, like, you know, your family and all that, and, they realize like, you know, you're pursuing this dream. And, you know, when you finally make the Tour de France roster or something, you know, it's, it's exciting for everybody, but it's, it's a very, for me, it's, it was, it's a very selfish lifestyle. It encompasses so many aspects of your life, even to the time of season that, you know, we have to plan our wedding, for example, you know, like it has to be in the off season when you can let loose and have a good time. So it's like all the cyclists are married between like mid September and mid November or something, <laughs> so you know, like <laughs> the same, uh, anniversaries. <laughs> oh, we all do. Yeah. And it's just like, so it's, it's, you have to sacrifice everything. Um, and that's, that's hard. And it was, like I said, it was so worth it, but eventually like I kind of saw this, this gravel movement where I could have a life and still be an elite athlete and still get paid to be uh, a bike racer. So, um, that was kind of what led to, to the transition a little bit too. Yeah, I, I could imagine. You know, and, and it's interesting. You mentioned it is a selfish lifestyle. I, I meet so many athletes that they're not selfish people, but in order to compete at that level, you have to spend so much time thinking about yourself and talking about yourself. And at a certain point, I can imagine it's like I'm just tired of thinking about myself all the time. It's true, and and you start to feel guilty about certain things eventually. Um, some guys don't. You know, some guys are just happy to to do that and. You know, it's, uh, I think very traditional, especially in the Euro sense, uh, you know, a lot of guys like, you know, they, they move out of, out of mom's house, you know, and they're racing and then they immediately meet their girlfriend, future wife. And the girlfriend basically moves in and starts cooking them dinner and, and doing everything to prepare for their training and their training camps and their race schedule. Um, which is fine, but it takes that 
dedication because at the same time you're you're already sacrificing so much it's like you can't succeed in in any sport really at that top end if you are only 99% invested you know and that's why i didn't pursue you know higher education too i you know in my early under 23 years i was in college as a freshman and racing full time in europe and it just you, you kind of realize like you can only do both it 80%, 90%. And if you're really already like suffering that much, like you just have to go all in and see where you can go. And at least if it doesn't work out, you know, you gave it everything. But you know, when something's so hard and such a dream, like any pro sport, I think you have to, you have to ride it out. So even if it doesn't work out, there's no regrets. And if it does work, then, you know, that's, that's a dream. So you have that ability. You got to go for it. Like it's just, yeah. You, you, and you had this incredible experience and did so many incredible things. And then you transition to gravel. And, and, and I know an injury was kind of a conduit for that for you. Um, and mm -hmm. I don't want to dwell too much on that because I know you've told that story a thousand times. <laughs> but yeah. you, uh, you made an incredible recovery after what looked like some pretty dark times. What was it like to get back on the bike? And tell us about that decision to transition into the gravel world. Yeah, you know, it was, again, just like I kind of talked about, you know, being that that junior in the Lance era, it was just, again, it was just this coincidental right time, right place. Um, and just seeing that opportunity and taking it. Um, and it was, yeah, it, it wasn't like, you know, I was, disillusioned and not fulfilling, you know, any athletic potential. I mean, I did the world tour for a decade on all the biggest teams. And, and, you know, as far as I was really concerned, like I had kind of ticked a lot of the boxes. I mean, of course there's a few regrets, you know, but, but I had the, my dreams in gravel outweighed my, my unchecked list in the world tour, which is why I made that decision. But what kind of what happened especially last year was this whole new discipline of cycling that was us based and fostered of just this experience of off-road hard endurance getting out there in the nothingness uh highlighted by this massive party and uh kind of that marathon style format where you have pros and age groupers all together um has really exploded and it is the most popular segment of cycling in the us now at the moment um and I kind of dabbled in a few of the races last season while still holding my my pro tour contract. And it was just this this moment of of um, enlightenment where I was like, oh, my gosh, like this is so big. I think I could actually make like a full time go of this and still like continue to be uh, competitive, but kind of do it on my own terms and have a lot more fun doing it. Um, so I, I kind of jumped off off the 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 circus of the world tour and started my own you know privateer project in being a quote unquote gravel pro even if if that is a thing but I'm trying to make it a thing what what are um, some things that are that are immediately you notice different about racing in these these events versus kind of the culture of of road racing you know it's it's still very much it's a party and a community experience first and foremost before it's a race and it's also it's gentlemen's racing so you know it's it's kind of the, the result is not the end all and be all it's the story and that shared experience which is powerful and most people are signing up for these things just because it's daunting to finish it 
Uh, that said, whenever you give somebody a number plate, like they're going to try harder. Like it's still a, a freaking bike race, you know? And so, um, so there's guys at the front really racing it, but then there's all, there's thousands of people doing it for their PR or their personal best. And at the end, like, you're like, oh my gosh, we all just, we all did our own journey, but we all did it together, you know? So it doesn't really matter, you know, if I did this event in six hours and you did it in seven or eight hours, like you, we went through the same things and to celebrate that together afterwards is really powerful. And then in terms of being a pro doing it, you know, you can kind of use your influence because people are nervous enough about even finishing these things, you know? So if there's a certain product like a tire that I can highlight saying, you know, like this is giving me the best chance for success. You know, I think people, you know, I have a platform to, to really speak to that, um, that people will listen to. So, you know, that's the pro template, but at the same time, you can't sacrifice being that placings before all else instead of, you know, I think people in gravel want to see a person who races bikes. I don't think they want to see a bike racer who's, uh, just a person on the side and kind of like, you know, you gotta be, you gotta be a personality and fun and, and, you know, and focus on, on the big picture a bit more. So you, you were, you and I were talking about that on that coast to coast, right? About it, it being more to grow the sport. You need people that are racing, that are, that are gregarious, that are, that are friendly, that are going to be inviting towards the sport versus, you know, there's a lot of sports out there that it can feel extremely intimidating to approach somebody, to talk to them or to, to even visit the race. You don't feel like you're doing something right, even as a spectator, but with gravel, it, it does seem more community oriented. And, and I think that's going to be a benefit in the long run for you. I hope so. I, I think so. You know, and I'm just, I'm having a lot more fun doing it. You know, there's going to be mm. certain days when I'm, you know, riding in on a flat tire with, you know, hours behind the winner. And it's still going to be just as important to hang out and, and enjoy the, the scene and, and share the stories. And the good thing about a uh, beer that's at the finish of all these events is it's, it's good for celebrating and it's good for commiserating. So, you know, it's gonna, I'm going to, I'm going to crack one anyway. And, you know, and, and look forward to the next project and the, the next, the next event and the next gathering of the tribe. What kind of feedback did you get? What did you hear from folks making the transition? Was there anyone that was just dumbfounded by it or what was, was there a lot of support? How was it for you? It definitely struck a chord in the, the cycling world. Um, I was surprised, you know, I, you know, it was very deliberate on kind of holding my cards close to my chest until I had some backers, you know, to support my adventure, but pretty quickly the industry saw it. And then once the news dropped, I mean, a lot of people were pretty surprised just because, you know, I'm not of like, this isn't like a retirement tour, whereas, you know, other people who have kind of started dabbling in gravel were kind of like, you know, winding it down, just kind of being a promotional face and, and, you know, going on a fun tour. And I, I mean, I'm kind of in the prime of my career physically. So yeah. um, it was very much like a jumping ship kind of feeling. And I think it struck a lot of chord just because, you know, my, my story, which is true is like, I'm, this is something I love more and I'm, I'm, striking out on my own for something that speaks true to my heart, even, you know, though it's stepping away from the limelight and the, the TV stuff and all that. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of people, I mean, it's just like any industry, you know, it's, it's, you know, instead of being an employee, you're starting your own business and, you know, trying to follow your dream. Um, and that was just cycling's version of that. So it was overwhelmingly supportive. I definitely think there's, I mean, cycling in Europe on the road is so traditional 
I mean, I've had team managers that say you can't have a beard, you can't have long hair, you can't have an ear piercing, like it doesn't look right. It's not professional, right? So cycling is so traditional that I think there are, some of my colleagues are very interested and some are like, oh, Pete's just winding it out. Like he's just playing bikes now. He's not a true pro. But I mean, I can look at my my fitness levels and my power files and tell you that's not the case. You talking about that sounds so much like the journey here at Athletic. Mm. How, what's more traditional than beer, you know? Right. <laughs> and it's like it's been thousands of years. <laughs> so when you diverge off the path to do something really out of the box, but essentially parallel, it's it's just you get all kinds of reactions. And, and it's like, who who's gonna who would do that? And then right. you, 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 you're shining a light on this path that you can't see where it goes. And it's like, it's in your court. You've got to make these connections. You've got to manage a lot more. You, you, you said like running your own business. I, I know mm-hmm. for you, it's, it's this whole new path and it has to feel scary, exciting, all of the above. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, the hustle is real. It's a lot of work. Um, it's a much more whole athlete, fo- a whole person focus, you know, it's, it's, you know, obligations to different sponsors, whether it's athletic or Canyon bikes or, or Shimano components and, you know, or it's, uh, it's, it's doing my own logistics, my own budgeting around that. Whereas as a, as a pro athlete, you know, you're literally just handed a bike and you just focus on your fitness and your body and everything else is taken care of, you know, so you can just focus on that. Um, which is, it's nice, but it's a very singular and simple pursuit, but yeah, you know, it's, (laughs) <laughs> the, the story is eerily similar, which is kind of fun, you know, and you realize that starting your own brand, right, is, you know, what do you stand for? And what is your angle, you know, and, and you really have to think about that for who you align yourself with and who you want to, you know, have, you know, at your back and, and share your story, you know, and, 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 you know, like the athletic story was really coincidentally interesting, you know, because it was kind of the same time, you know, you guys have really exploded in the last year. And it's just, you know, it, it is th- that same story of stepping out of the box, like screw tradition, like this makes sense. Like there's, there's something here and we got to take it with both hands, you know? So that was a great story, you know? And the funny thing enough is, you know, like I'll, when I made this move, you know, like being a relatively well-known American cyclist in, in the pro world, like, you know, the, the industry sponsors were not difficult. You know, I, I actually got a lot of calls, but I, you know, you guys, like I, I pursued you, like I wanted you guys before you knew who I was. So, um, uh, I, I read about you guys in a magazine article and I was up here in Tahoe training for the, uh, the Vuelta España, which is the, the Tour de France version of Spain, right? Three weeks long and all that. And, you know, your weight and your health and all that matters so much, but you know, I'm, I'm definitely, I'm a, I'm a beer geek, you know, for, and it's not always the best blend with with your fitness. So I actually I ordered a case of your stuff last year, and I was like, oh my god, I can finish my training ride. I go down to the lake and I crack a beer on the lake like everybody else, enjoying their summer vacation. But you know, I can I, I'm still like keeping my weight in check, which is so important and all that. And um, you know, so that that was my introduction to it. And then I, you know, I'm I'm really glad that we got to align this year. It's it's been a lot of fun, and now I I get a lot of athletic beer in my fridge. It's so cool, man. The, the, yeah, the, the you know, even Bill's story, the founder, you know, career in finance, very traditional, very stable. Oh, yeah. Just kind of like, here's what you do and here's how you make money. And it's like stepping away from all that. It's, it's you know, it's terrifying, but it's a blank canvas for you in a lot of ways, uh, which can be it daunting is. some days. But I'm sure other days it's you're pumped more than you could ever, uh, ever imagine. 
yeah, you need the courage is is step one, and I think the sweat equity and is step two. You know, that's it takes a lot of work to make make it make a splash. You know, but no, it's it's yeah, it's been a great journey, um, and it's it's actually paid off a lot, especially you know with the the pandemic year. You know, it was. I mean, I miss I miss events in the gathering of of my tribe more than more than anyone. But at the same time, it was a really nice year to be able to talk with with you guys and my other sponsors and pivot to alternative concepts and events in in lieu of whereas traditional racing was just a hard governmental strict lockdown like you're a pro bike racer there's no pro pro bike racing you know and and whereas we could like oh i'm gonna you know meet up with you guys and tell you ride in the mountains and we're gonna like ride and take pictures on some really scenic stuff and then i'm gonna go try for you know a, a fast thing on some course in the colorado mountains or whatever. So it was, um, it was hard to, con- to reinvent myself twice once with gravel and then immediately after with no racing, what am I going to do? But at the same time, like it allowed for a lot of creativity, which was, I think it was a silver lining. Yeah, This is not the first time you've had to look at something that could be devastating as a silver lining. You know, your knee was probably the first big lesson mm. in that. It's not what it seems necessarily. Um, we hear these kind of stories over and over again of, of coming back from recovery, but it it's almost like you, you just don't know it until you go through it yourself. Yeah. You know, well, so those who don't know, um, I just shattered my knee and my leg uh, in a really bad crash in Europe in 2015. I mean, it was exploded kneecap, uh, cracked tibia, five ribs, LCL, uh, critical condition in the Spanish hospital for a few weeks, uh, a whole nother hour-long podcast on the actual story of getting back to America. <laughs> um, but it was a lot of people wrote off, wrote my career off. Um, you know, some, you know, a doctor said, if the bone doesn't heal right, we're going to amputate it. And I, it was kind of like this whole, I had to relearn to walk, um, but I was on a contract year. So I kind of had my back against the wall to prove that I deserve to be a pro athlete. So um, that was, it was a definitely a tough time and a lot of some, some introspection and, um, and some, some thinking of what, what's next besides sport. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I saved my career, um, you know, re-signed with, with, uh, Trek at that point, um, and, and spent four more years in the world tour. So that was the story. And, uh, there's documentaries on it if anyone actually wants to. Yeah. I was <laughs> going to say that. like, hey, there's been some incredible, you know, covering of that story, and I'm going to push exactly. people to listen, and it's hugely inspiring. If that doesn't prove you've got what it takes to make whatever you want to do happen, I don't know what will, man. You you got what it takes. Like that's Thanks, that's incredible. Man. That's incredible. I you know I personally value that recovery um, as my biggest victory in my career. You know, a lot of I've had I answer a lot of questions of you know, what was your biggest result? And, you know, for, it wasn't a, a win. Like that was the biggest struggle and fight personally, you know, of physically, I would say, and sometimes mentally, but you know, that was, that was what I'm most proud of for me in my, my career and showing that I could come back. Um, you know, and then looking forward, I would really actually love to just redo my 2020 calendar because most of the big gravel events didn't get to happen, you know, and I'm, I'm pretty optimistic in just that, you know, if, if the vaccine stuff is, is legit and it, it, you know, corrects all and, you know, hopefully we can just be back to those 4,000 person events that we all love, um, and rock concerts and all that. Um, so I would love to just get a do my initial jump to gravel that I didn't even get to do. Um, so that's, that's plan a, but you know, you always need a plan B right now. So 
should things lock down again, I have a bunch of other alt projects coming out. Um, you know, a silver lining this year was finding the uh, the public interest and my personal love of FKTs, meaning fastest known times on certain course records, very solo and almost spiritual efforts in the middle of, of nowhere on, on famous routes. So there'll be more of that regardless. Um, I, I think events are going to happen, marathons, uh, bike events in the summer, in the warm months when when you can gather outside. There was an event that got the green light late October, and they it was a 600-person event. I was very nervous about attending, but um, I wanted to support the organizer because they really put their necks out there, and they had a pretty uh, robust and thoughtful COVID mitigation strategy. And um, there have been zero reported cases from that event in October. So I think at the, at the worst case scenario, if things are like they were this summer, when we didn't understand a lot about this whole thing, this pandemic, then I think things can happen in, in, the, in the warmest months of the year. So that gives me some hope. I totally agree. We're, go- we're going to find a way to make events uncancelable. Man, Pete, man, you just shared so many cool things. You know, you talked about your FKTs. I saw you did this thing about funnest known times. And I, I remember when <laughs> I saw this and we were getting ready for the coast to coast trip, I was like, we're going to get, I'm going to get along with this guy. You know, <laughs> talking about having fun more than anything and focusing yeah. on that in a, in a, in a year like this, that's, that's a hell of a good attitude right there. So I was like, Pete, Pete and I are right. going to be friends. I think <laughs> that was cool. You know, it's, Maybe you guys can help me with a route out east or something. But, you know, the, the fastest known time is not always the funnest. I mean, your funnest bike rides are going hard sometimes and going for a PR on a certain hill. But there's also there's swimming holes and there's amazing bakeries with this crazy flavored muffin and all these <laughs> other things that make the adventure so worth it. Right. Um, so, you know, I'm kind of working with a few sponsors to set up uh, routes in near major populated areas. Um with the, the hashtag of the funnest known time. And we kind of establish a route and teach you those, those tips and tricks to, to just have a great day out there in, in that area. That's like, this is a killer ride. Here's the GPS. Here's the, the nuances and the things to look for, whether it's a camel in the mountains of Colorado or a swimming hole in deep in Marin County or something. So that's been a lot of fun. That's awesome. Well, dude, let's jump into rapid fire. I know we've kind of gone over time and, um, but I, I would love to ask, you don't have to answer these one word, just kind of a sentence or two. All right on. Cool. All right. Rapid fire number one. Do you have a life motto or a motto that you're kind of currently living out? Yeah. Um, a happy racer is a fast racer. You know, it's, I think you can look back at our whole conversation and see why I've chosen that. You jumped on that, man. You knew, you knew that yep. was, <laughs> okay. I, that's in the front of your mind then. Dang, that's been awesome. a lot of pivoting this year. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. You got that in your van somewhere on the ceiling. Um, <laughs> Maybe that's a tattoo, yeah. <laughs> okay, there you go. Right on the knuckles. Um, what are you most curious about right now outside of, outside of racing? I, I craft beer, actually. You know, I, I, that was another reason that we joined forces was, uh, I am very much a, a beer geek and a beer snob at this point, um, which is not all, for a lot of a lot of pro athletes out there. Um, but I love traveling to different towns and visiting the local tap house and getting a flight or something and, and exploring the world of craft beer. That's probably my second favorite passion. 
Wow, I didn't realize it was that high on your list. That's that's cool to hear. So yeah, we're like a cheat code for you then, because exactly those, your two passions kind of work against each other sometimes. But I know exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're doing the math now, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking. All right, you know, he's he's it's literally working against each other, but that's cool. It keeps you sharp. Um, <laughs> uh, so so you you answered this proudest achievement is is you know recovering from that knee surgery what would you say the proudest achievement is maybe outside of your career altogether mm, it's a hard one you know just uh outside of my career i've been so focused on the world tour honestly like you have to live a singular life for so long um you know just family you know meeting my wife early and and you know marrying her early and getting stronger through this pandemic and you know we've got you know I'm, I'm relatively young and I got a, I got, you know, a cabin in Tahoe, which is a dream. Um, so it's a good lifestyle right now. Love when I love when to hear when folks are in a good spot. I mean, I think all my other achievements are through cycling related, right? Like I work with, you know, a charity that supports injured athletes, but I can do that because of, you know, my, my position within the cycling community. And so it's, you know, it's, it's hard to differentiate the two because like I said before, your job is your lifestyle in cycling. No, I think, I think that's a good answer. You know, it's different for everybody. So, so tell me this then, what's your biggest goal not yet achieved? Oof. Um, yeah, just, just very small little questions here. <laughs> <laughs> I know we're getting real philosophic right now. Um, you know, I would love to this year specifically, my biggest professional goal is to, you know, actually stand on the top step in some of the biggest gravel races. Um, but even more importantly, just help continue to make gravel a very legitimate discipline within cycling. Um, and that includes beyond personal race results, that's continuing to make a living being my own boss and my own brand and act, uh, foster diversity in cycling, whether through um, people of a different racial background or, or women's uh, parody in sport, you know, so I have, I had a couple irons in the fire in that regard. Awesome. All right. Last question and, uh, kind of wrap it all up. How do you live without compromise? I think I compromise a lot <laughs> on a lot of things, <laughs> whether it's an interval or it's a, a, a beer that I shouldn't have. Um, you know, there's a, there's another motto. It, it's not, a it's not a motto. It's, it's a, it's a good way to live though. Uh, just, it's, you know, just, you got to be at 90%, 90% of the time, you know? And so I think there is always room for a compromise, but as long as you're 90% at your top, you know, you're always there, you're always professional, whatever it is in life, whether it's your relationship, it's your, your race goals, it's, you know, it's your training, it's yeah. your, your job. Um, if you're at 90%, um, there's always, you know, there's 10% of the time you can step it up to like that ultimate peak, right. For that biggest goal. Um, and then, you know, 10, you know, a couple percent of the time you can drop it down and have a great night out with friends and, and regret it the next day too. Like there's, there's gotta be room for that flux. Right. But if you can kind of keep your baseline at 90%, I think, uh, you do pretty well. So actually I live with a lot of compromises. Yeah. You know, th there is a healthy side of compromise. And I guess yeah. the one we talk about is, you know, the negative side, like we, we've, we've got, we've all got to make decisions that we come to an agreement somewhere. Well, Pete, man, thanks for joining us. This was great. I, I mean, it's, I feel like it could be a five-hour interview with uh, with just your whole story and everything you've gone through and what you're doing now. It's so interesting. 
Thanks, guys. I'm yeah, uh, happy to be on, and I'm uh, I'm waiting for that that call when you ask me to, to make a collaboration beer. I'm just, you know, hey, I'm I'm ready. I'm self plugging that one. All right, hey, hey, <laughs> we start sending some emails. I have no say in that, but I know who does. <laughs> but there we go. Well, cool. Well, Pete, man, thank you so much. I hope you uh, have a great day, and we'll talk soon. It sounds good. See you. All right. See you. All right, folks, that is Pete Stetna. Please follow him on Instagram. Keep up with what he's doing. And if you would like to get some of the great craft beer that he's talking about in this, go to athleticbrewing.com. Make sure you're ready to go for dry January uh, because that's happening today. That's starting today. We're going to be doing all kinds of things with beer games, with workouts. And again, Happy New Year.